Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. A lot has been made of the top-ranked men not being very good on grass and, you know, coming into this Wimbledon, maybe there was an anticipation of some chaos. I had a little bit of that. Have you noticed they're all kind of still around? You look at the top, the top half of the draw, uh, seeds could hold. Alcaraz-Runa quarterfinal, that's a possibility. Seeds could hold in the Medvedev quarter because Tsitsipas is still alive. And then you look at the bottom half, which is the side of the draw that played on Sunday, the matches that I will be talking about in this video. And, you know, the only top seed that's been taken out is Kasparud. And frankly, that was just kind of predictable. That's a guy who wasn't even in my top 10 power rankings. Yannick Sinner's through. Rublev is through. Djokovic is up two sets to love on her coach. Let's talk about some of the action on this middle Sunday. Of course, a active Tennessee middle Sunday. And let's start with Rublev, Rublev Bublik. They were first on center court, and it was the match that I was most looking forward to watching today. Rematch of the Hala final. And I felt like it could go either way. I thought it was going to be close. It was close, especially on the scoreboard. Uh, watching it, it, it didn't feel quite as close as, as maybe it looks from what the score ultimately was. But... Obviously, coming in, the main key was going to be very simple. Was Andre Rublev going to be able to make returns of serve this time? Because in Hala, he he simply could not. 82% of Alexander Bublik's first serves went unreturned in Hala. And you just don't have any chance to break serve if that is the case. So I was looking for adjustments from Rublev. Would he guess more? Would he block returns, which I've never really seen him do? He did make adjustments. He was so much better. So much better. Night and day difference on the return against Bublik in this match compared to Hala. He moved back. I think that was probably the most significant adjustment. Now, did he look like Daniil Medvedev? Did he look like Rafa or team? No. Definitely not, but Andre Rublev is a baseline hugger when it comes to the return of serve. And he moved back maybe four to five feet. And, you know, that's pretty significant. We're talking about split seconds, fractions of seconds. And uh, Bublik gave himself, sorry, Rublev gave himself just a little bit more time. That seemed to help. He seemed to read the serve much better. I don't want to say that he was like selling out and completely guessing, but he was definitely doing more leaning. 
And I thought a lot of the times he was correct when he was leaning one way or another. So uh, maybe there was some some scouting. Maybe there was some studying done about uh, Bublik's tendencies or perhaps how you can read the toss midair or read the body uh, while the toss is in midair and perhaps discern where the serve is going to go. Uh, but Rublev was much, much more on it. And then, and this part should not be ignored, the conditions are much slower at Wimbledon compared to Halle. And I, I don't think it's particularly close. The ball, the Schlossinger ball especially, it's just a really, really slow ball. And I think that's the biggest factor. Wimbledon's a lot slower than really all of the grass court lead-ups. Uh, maybe, maybe Herr Tagenbosch is, is also kind of slow. Uh, but, you know, Halle, Stuttgart, Queens, they're all much faster than Wimbledon. Uh, so I think that also helped Andre just get more returns in play. Other keys to the match. Uh, Bublik's second serve seemed to dictate outcomes quite a bit. And early on, it was di dictating outcomes in a negative way. Uh, he hit two double faults at 30-all to get broken in the first set. And then he hit one in the game that he was broken in the second set. Ultimately, sets one, sets two, nine double faults. And it felt like he was under a lot of pressure uh, because of that, obviously. But then in sets three and four, he hit two double faults. They were completely out of his game. He wasn't hitting them anymore. And those are the two sets that he won. Also, I think in the second serve conversation, you have to mention that in the fourth set, he saved a match point on a 135 mile per hour second serve. Rublev actually got it back. That was kind of impressive in itself. But Bublik hit the plus one on the forehand uh, to finish off the point and save that match point. So, you know, you have the double-edged sword of Bublik going after his second serve. Look, I actually, like, I, I know the question that might be in your head. Should Bublik maybe not go for massive second serves? Would he be better if he didn't do that? Or is he actually executing the correct tactic, the better tactic here? And the answer to that is, I, I'm not, I can't answer it. I can't answer that question. We need math people. We need numbers people, analytics people uh, to actually, you know, figure that out accurately because it's, uh, it's not subjective. It's not. It's, it's a numbers game. And for all the data that can be collected with, with Bublik, it would be pretty easy to figure out uh, what the numbers game looks like. I was having a conversation earlier in the day on playback with Mark Lucero, uh, Stevie Johnson's coach, and we were talking about how in football, going for it on fourth down was something that all coaches thought was a really risky thing to do in certain situations. And this was common knowledge in football that there are certain situations that you don't go for it on fourth down. Well, the, the analytics and the numbers came in and they showed that everybody who thought they knew something was wrong. Uh, the same thing happened in the NBA where the analytics uh, fleshed out that, no, it's actually okay to shoot threes in transition where any coach in the 90s would have said, that's 
the wrong way to do it. That's bad basketball, and they were wrong. And that's why I'm not going to sit here and act like I know the answer to whether or not it's beneficial or not for Bublik to hit 115, 120-mile-per-hour second serves on a regular basis, uh, where what you would ha actually have to do is you have to find the double fault rate, you have to figure out the probabilities of both strategies, and and find out what's best. And it could be that more players should actually be doing what Bublik is doing. It could be that. It could be. But they don't want to because it feels crappy to double fault in big spots. It feels like that is the worst case scenario. When at the end of the day, losing a point is losing a point. It doesn't matter if you double fault or if you lose a point another way. It doesn't matter. It's all about what is going to give you the best chance of winning the point. And for Bublik, that could be going after his second serve. I don't know. We need numbers people to figure that out, is my point. Anyway, uh, when Bublik stopped double faulting in the third set and the fourth set, obviously his second serve effectiveness went up. That really stabilized his service games, and we ended up getting tie breaks in both of those sets. Both of the tie breaks were close. Both of them were competitive. Clutch sequences of shot making at the end of both tie breaks for Bublik. Third set at six all, Sasha had an ace. And then on set point, he made a great running forehand pass down the line, which was excellent. And then in the fourth set tie break at five all, he decides to serve and volley off of his second serve. Rublev kind of nails the return, but Sasha handles the half volley expertly. And Rublev has a chance at a short angle pass, but it's really not what Andre is good at. And he puts it in the net. Ultimately, I was uh, impressed with the volley. And, you know, I think it is what it is for Andre. It was not an easy shot to execute. And again, he just doesn't have great hands in those kinds of situations. Uh, so Bublik wins that point to earn himself a set point in the fourth set tiebreak. And then he blocks a return and laces a forehand cross court on the run to force an error. Very bold, aggressive forehand in another huge spot. So two of them on set point on the run there. So he steals the fourth set. And it seems at this point, you know, Bublik is hanging on by a thread, but you're also wondering where is Andre at mentally because he's been knocking on the door of winning the match for nearly two hours here and he just can't get it done. So what is it going to feel like coming into the fifth set? And I think for Andre, he remained confident on serve. He knew that he had, he had not been broken. For Bublik, the double faults come back. He hits four of them total in this fifth set. He hits one at 30-all, 30-all, 3-all. And then comes a break point for Rublev, 30-40. Rublev ends up making a really good first serve return on the forehand. Next ball, he has a chance to take a nice, healthy cut at a forehand inside out. He hits it big. And Bublik weirdly tries to go down the line with his open stance backhand and hits the net. Strange shot selection, but this is Alexander Bublik we're talking about. Strange shot selection is normal shot selection. So that's the break of serve. Rublev also hit two additional really good first serve returns in that game, uh, which he also did in the break of serve, the crucial break of serve that he had in the second set. So it's not as if Andre was relying on Bublik to just miss a bunch of first serves in order to break. 
as I mentioned at the very start of this, Andre's first serve return was so much better than last time that, you know, it was actually a key part of his success in this match in those key moments. Rublev serving out the match. We got to talk about what happened at 3015. Uh, I believe Rublev is hitting a, a forehand inside out once again, and Bublik is going to go down the line to counter. And Bublik connects on a backhand down the line that he is quite certain finished the point. He is quite certain that he just won the point and it's about to be 30 all. And we know that he's certain that he just won the point because when he grunts, he gives it the little extension treatment. He gives it the ah as the ball is flying across the court as if the point is over, but it's not because Andre Rublev ranges to his right, dives to hit the forehand slice squash shot, and Bublik not only extended his grunt, but was not recovering to the middle. And nonetheless, uh, you know, Rublev, despite being on his rear end at this point because he had to dive, there will be no response for his miraculous slice forehand defense. Uh, It is a winner. It is one of my favorite shots of the year. It was a tense moment, and the audio is marvelous. The, The grunt from Bublik, the gasp from the crowd, and then the roar that follows... It is, it is so good. It was so good. And great hustle by Rublev. Less good hustle from Bublik, who, uh, you know, he, he can fall prey to, to these issues sometimes. Now, again, at the end of the day, the, the, the headliner here is that Rublev came up with an awesome shot. And, you know, you can kind of end it there. But if you want to go a little bit deeper, it is kind of like it's Bublik once again showing that he doesn't really have a workmanlike quality. He's not necessarily dotting his T's and crossing his I's. And instead of you know making sure that it really was indeed going to be a winner and just secure the next ball with his court positioning, it was a little showboaty what he did. All right? I think that's fair to say. And then Rublev hits an ace, a lot of energy at the end of the match, and a uh, an eighth major quarterfinal for Andre Rublev. I want to say Rublev's returning was the difference in this match, but then you look at Rublev not getting broken once, five for five breakpoint saved, but ultimately you look at him not getting broken once, and then it becomes you know hard to just say, yeah, he returned better, and that's what was the difference. Because obviously he didn't even need to return that well. Because he he never got broken. So first of all, I think Rublev doesn't get enough credit for his consistency. It's really hard to play clean enough to pull that off over five sets when you don't have a Hercotch or you know Bublik like or Kyrgios Berrettini like serve. When you're holding the whole way and you don't have a serve like that, which Rublev doesn't, it, it means like you are being 
quite reliable, quite buttoned up, quite focused off the ground. And I, I don't know, maybe it's because Rublev is really loud on court. You know, he grunts loud. He hits his forehand big. He's pretty aggressive. Maybe that's why he doesn't get enough credit for his consistency. But I would like to end that because Andre Rublev uh, is incredibly consistent off the ground. It's one of his great traits. And then for Bublik, I felt like there were a lot of absent-minded ground stroke errors in this match. He didn't seem quite as willing to run as he was in Hala. The forehand was a lot more hot and cold. And his drop shot execution was very shaky for the first uh, two sets. I won't say that it was like you know, a total a total mismatch from the baseline. But Rublev is still like a lot better than Bublik in, in neutral positions or, you know, once the the serve uh is neutralized. He he's still a lot better. So uh great win for Rublev. Bublik, I, I will say he has my attention. He he does. I am very intrigued to watch him for the rest of the year. I think there's a potential that he's about to have a breakthrough uh couple months that that has that will build on his biggest career title one of his best runs actually no his best run at a major was this Wimbledon uh so there's some momentum here obviously grass is his best surface i i am intrigued though and i do think it's possible that there's been a psychological shift you know, I, I don't think he's ever going to become a workhorse. I don't think he's ever going to become somebody who never gets distracted on court, who who always makes sound decisions on court. And certainly he didn't always make sound decisions in this one. In fact, if he lost the fourth set tiebreak, uh, I probably would have been pretty critical because he was up 6-3, engaged in some absolute buffoonery, and then it w ended up being 6-all. Uh, it might have been the third set tiebreak that I'm thinking of. I think it was. Uh, yeah, but, you know, really, really bad how he blew that lead. Made some terrible decisions. Ended up winning the tiebreak, and that's why I haven't talked about it until then. Uh, but, you know, while I don't ever think he's going to be someone uh, who who exhibits the uh, mental qualities of David Ferrer, uh, I, I am hopeful that there maybe is a little bit more focus in how he's managing his body on and off the court and just how badly he wants to win. So that's my thing on um, Bublik. Uh, Rublev will face the winner of Djokovic Hercoc. Um, should I talk about Djokovic Hercoc now? Yes, I should. Let's let's do that now. Uh, Hercoc's serving was insane. Twenty-two aces in two sets. Seventy-eight percent first serves in. <laughs> I mean, he, he was literally serving too well for Novak to break. And we know how good a returner Novak is, but he just didn't have much of a chance here. So let's talk about these tie breaks. The first set tiebreak was interesting. And, uh, you know, I guess that's me putting it kindly. To me, the first set tiebreak was sort of an atrocity. I won't lie. I'll keep it real. Here's how it played out. In this tiebreak, there were six occasions in which a return was put in play. So six times, the ball was actually in play. Djokovic won five of those points on five Hercotch on forced errors. The one point 
of that set that Hercotch won was actually the first set of the tiebreak, uh, the first point of the tiebreak, rather, when Hercotch, behind his serve, went to hit a forehand drive volley, completely and utterly shanked it, but it ended up being, you know, an, a, an approach shot that went right through the middle and Djokovic couldn't make the pass and Hercotch finished at net. So six times the serve came back. And the one point that Hercotch won, he got lucky. It was a shank and, and it worked out. He got lucky. And he made five unforced errors. All that said, like if, if you just deal with that information, you'd think that Novak won the tiebreak pretty easily. No, he was down 6-3. He was down 6-3. Because Hercotch won five one-shot rallies. He won five, and that's just the serve. That's one. Serve. One. All right? He hit four unreturned serves, three aces, and a service winner. And Djokovic double-faulted. And that was the decisive mini-break. So here's Hercotch now at, like, 6-5. And he is one, like, he's one, one more big serve away from winning a tie-break in which he literally didn't win a point other than shanking a ball besides serving. And I got to be honest with you. Like, I appreciate great serving. I, I do. I think it's something to be, again, appreciated, enjoyed, marveled at. Uh, great serving is cool. I, I love great serving. But do I love, do I love somebody winning a tie break when they literally didn't win a single rally over one shot other than a shank? N not really. Th that's a little extreme. So I was kind of I was kind of happy that Novak pulled this out just because of how things played out. I didn't feel like Hercotch I didn't feel like Hercotch deserved it. Like that's just what I felt. It was again, great serving, cool. Maybe give us like one point where you come up with a shot. One. Here's what happened at 6-5, though. Novak moved back, and he blocked the forehand return. And Hercotch dumped uh, the first forehand into the net on an approach shot. So, you know, good job by Djokovic there uh, to save that set point where, where he recognized, like, look, I'm sure he knew. For the life of me, for the life of me, I make this return in the court. Just make him do something. And and he just he just couldn't. It was a really bad tiebreak from Hercotch other than the serves. And he he almost won it anyway. That's kind of my point. All right, second set tiebreak. Hubie was much, much better. Uh he actually uh did come up with a lot of uh a lot of really really nice moments in this one. Uh he had a beautiful backhand slice down the line, absolutely nasty. Loved it. Backhand slice for the entirety, you know, the big full picture. Mm. Not so great for Hercotch, but this one was great. Uh, Hercotch came up with a wonderful forehand return winner down the line off of a wide serve on the deuce side. And Hercotch saved a set point of his own with the base, the best baseline rally he played all match. Fantastic point by Hubie at 6-5, which uh, ended with a really... Uh, a signature of Hercotch's game, which was a backhand cross court on the grass, which just stayed so incredibly low that 
it it caused it forced the error really for Novak because uh, he had to try to hit a backhand slice from his shoelaces and missed it. So that made it six all. But ultimately, those great moments that I just mentioned for Hercotch were still offset by too many mistakes. And at 6-all, Novak uh, hit a really good serve, finished with an overhead. Hercotch nearly made the pass on the backhand. That, that would have been something, but not quite. And then at 6-7, it's another serve plus one. Good serve. Routine forehand. Wasn't even close. Uh, just bad. Just bad. And that's kind of part of it for Hercotch. I would, uh, he's not missing by slim margins. Like we're talking about easy balls on his forehand side that, that he is just making a mess of under pressure. And uh, we know this, it's nothing new. So Djokovic up two sets to love. They run into the curfew. I will talk about the scheduling in another video. So let's uh, throw that to the side for now. Uh, there was a stretch in the afternoon today where it was side-by-side -side action. Uh, women's fourth-round matches, Sviantek Bencic on center, uh, Svitolina Azarenka on court one. And both of them were going at the same time, and both of them were so, so, so good. So I do want to talk about those. Iga comes through with a three-set victory over Bencic. I think it, it's probably the most fearless, most secure tennis I've ever seen Iga play off clay. And I'm not including blowouts here. Because we know that Sviantek is a great front runner. We know that she can pour it on. We know when she's feeling when she's feeling good, when she's feeling confident. She likes to, to crush opponents. She often does crush opponents. Um, we know at the U.S. Open last year that she was able to kind of win without her best, and she's gotten better and better at doing that, but nobody really played great against her. In this match, here's how I saw it. I saw it as Belinda Bencic was playing excellent tennis. So was Iga, and it was still close because Bencic was just that good, and Sviantek under pressure, had to come up with the goods to, you know, uh, escape defeat, which she was staring right down the barrel of. I don't think I've seen Sviantek play so so fearlessly when an opponent is is taking it to her to the level that Bencic was off of clay. Two match points in the second set for Bencic. I mean, Iga saves them in spectacular fashion. Both of them on her terms uh, with big, confident ground strokes. Um, I, I know the second one was a backhand cross-court winner. I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy on the first one. I think it was a forehand down the line uh, forced error. She kind of uh, took that momentum from 5-6 when she saved the set points uh, through to the tiebreak, continued with just unbelievably, uh, you know, overwhelming uh, high-level aggressive tennis, which on on grass, you know, she can execute off of both wings. 
And then I think after winning the tiebreak, arm pain kind of got to Benchich in the third set. I was happy to see Benchich pull this off. Uh, she's been injured. She didn't come in with a lot of match play. And for that reason, the expectations were a lot lower for Belinda than they've been at the last couple Wimbledons. But at the last couple Wimbledons, believe it or not, she has disappointed with surprising first-round losses that I know, at least for me, had completely taken me by surprise because I watch how Belinda Bencic has played in the grass court lead-ins to Wimbledon, which throughout her career she's been excellent, but in the last two years she's been particularly excellent. And I've always thought that she should, she should have a huge Wimbledon run. She should come up with something huge at Wimbledon. And it just hadn't happened for her. And once again, this isn't a, this isn't a great run. It's just a run of the fourth round. And Bencic is a player. Uh, I feel like the talent that she possesses on a surface like this, are there major limitations to her game on a surface that doesn't reward flat hitting and doesn't bring some speed to the table? Yes, there are some major limitations. But on, on a quicker, more low-bouncing court, which, by the way, the U.S. Open and the Australian Open have kind of become, but Wimbledon certainly with the low bounce as well. I just feel like Bencic should be doing a lot more. She has underachieved at majors for the most part, but you look at her record at Wimbledon, now it's 14 and 8, 64% win percentage. Grass courts that aren't Wimbledon, she's at 71%. Pretty significant jump when you consider that usually she's seated. So, you know, she's often going to have a more favorable draw, more favorable opponents at Wimbledon than she will when she plays a tournament like Berlin, which is a WTA 500. So for there to be that big a difference in her results at Wimbledon versus off Wimbledon, it doesn't make much sense. And I was just happy to see her put in a good effort here, almost pull off a huge victory. And I don't think she should be too down on herself because once again, she didn't really lose those match points so much as Sviantek won them. As soon as that match ends, it, it, it times up well with uh, the end of the Svitolina-Azarenka match. Svitolina, first of all, I, I watched her a lot at Roland Garros, where uh, she also played quite well. She's a different player than what she was pre-pregnancy. Much bigger, much flatter on the forehand. In general, willing to take more risk. But what I love about it is uh, it's almost, and I just thought of this. I, I swear to God, this this isn't in my notes. But it's almost the reverse Monfils, her husband, obviously. Gail Monfils, I think, started doing some things a little bit smarter, a little bit better in terms of uh, short ball recognition, flattening out the forehand, just you know, in general, recognizing when it's time to be aggressive. I, I'm not saying that Monfils ever got it perfect, but he definitely started to do better. The problem with that is that when Monfils started to do that, and I'm talking, you know, 2019, 2018, when Monfils, I, I started to notice getting better with that, he had, he had already kind of lost his athleticism. His speed just wasn't really there like it was when he was young. It was too late. I don't think that's the case for Svitolina. Even though, even though Svitolina like, hasn't even been back for that long, uh, I think she's moving great. I still love her footwork. I still think defensively she's extremely skilled. 
And I, maybe it makes sense because she's only 28 years old. So, you know, she's just not that, that old. So, it, you know, she, I guess in that sense, she still should be athletic. But I feel like Svitolina now has offensive punch to her game, which she didn't before. And she's still athletic. And I'm really intrigued to see what she can do. Already uh, a super accomplished player, especially when it comes to the number of titles that she's won in her career. It's a, it's a really high number. I, I don't have it off the top of my head right now, but it's... Uh, how many titles does she has? I, I know she's been incredible in finals, and it's been kind of juxtaposed with struggles to kind of go all the way at majors. That's been kind of the weird thing about her career. Hold on. I, I want this number for titles. I'm sorry. I, I need it. I need it. I want it. I'm going to get it. 17. 17 titles to three runner-ups. So she's got a 17-3 and three record in WTA Finals, which would suggest that she's an incredibly clutch player. But then her performances at majors, uh, quarterfinals and semifinals in particular, have, have gone the complete other way, the complete opposite of that, which is one of the more enigmatic stats in, in women's tennis. Uh, anyway, they go down the stretch in this 10-point tiebreak. Quality is through the roof. They are similar players, Azarenka and Svitolina. Uh, not a lot of, of free points on the serve for either of them. And they are uh, just unbelievable, un unbelievably well-rounded baseliners who move laterally extremely well, have great consistency, uh, very even off of both wings. Um, Azarenka's backhand is probably a little bit more of a weapon. Um, but I think right now Svitolina's forehand has become especially on grass with the way she's flattening out. Svitolina has more on her forehand. Anyway, 10-point tie break. The interesting thing, because they're so consistent, because they're moving so well, hard to finish points. And you got the sense in some of these key baseline rallies at the end, especially when the nerves come into play uh, because of the high leverage situations and you know that they're going to make sure not to miss off the ground. It's kind of like, how are these points going to end? Because it feels like they're never going to end. Is it going to be a physical thing? Is it a battle of attrition here? What is it going to be? And the result ends up being pretty interesting. At 8-all, Vika pushes Alina back, gets a short ball to attack on the backhand side, goes to the drop shot and leaves it short and it hits the net. That gives her a match point. Uh, well, that gives Svitolina a match point. Azarenka uh, saves it with, with some good aggression and an overhead finish uh, behind her serve. Then at 9-all, Svitolina does the same thing where she hits a great backhand down the line. She gets a short ball with Azarenka's position a little bit compromised. And Svitolina goes to the forehand drop shot, but Azarenka missed hers. Svitolina makes it. It's a good forehand dropper. It is not a winner, but it finishes the point as uh, Azarenka was was forced to hit a running backhand from uh, from off her shoelaces and uh, didn't couldn't hit the strings on it. Goes long, and then on match point, second match point, Svitolina has, hits an ace out wide, beautiful angle by Alina. Super emotional. Uh, crowd was very into it. Seemed like the crowd was behind Svitolina, and. Big result for her uh, post-pregnancy. Biggest at a, at a major. Uh, but, you know, she won the title the week before before Roland Garros. 
that's all I have on the tennis there, but I do want to talk, I think for the first time, I don't know that I've talked about this, and it was a big story over the course of, the, of Roland Garros, and I kind of ignored it, and I don't know how interested people are in hearing about it, but I, I do want to talk about it because it does continue to bother me, obviously, and there's nothing that can be done, but nobody should be getting booed. Nobody should be getting booed right now. And, you know, we knew coming in, or anybody who follows this stuff knows coming in, there's not going to be a handshake between Azarenka and Svitolina. Azarenka does what, in my opinion, is the classy thing to do, which is, you know, acknowledge acknowledge Alina, which she did. I don't know. She put a hand up or a thumbs up or a fist up. I don't know what it was. Uh, but, but something, there's not going to be a handshake, and that's just how it's going to be. Look, this sucks. War sucks. I don't like it. But everybody's trying their best here. And from the Ukrainian perspective, they're following their conscience. They are acting in solidarity with their family members, their loved ones, their compatriots who are literally risking their lives on the battlefield against this attacking enemy. And of course, they want to, first of all, feel like they are supporting these people, that they stand with these people, and that publicly they are offering reminders to the world about what's going on in Ukraine because, you know, raising awareness and raising visibility, like, is objectively important to the war effort. Not to mention the internal guilt that you may feel if you are a Ukrainian tennis player uh, traveling around the world, making millions of dollars, hitting a fuzzy yellow tennis ball back and forth, while, again, your brothers, sisters, family, loved ones, compatriots are suffering. And to, to ease the guilt that would naturally come with that situation, well, you want to do everything you possibly can. And that's what they're doing. And this is just part of that. Now, from the Russian and Belarusian perspective, they have, for the most part, look, some have said they don't understand it, which is okay, but they have mostly been respectful of the situation and respectful of the decision uh, that the Ukrainian women have made. And that's great. So I don't know why Azarenka is getting booed. None of this is her fault either. At, at Roland Garros, I forget, but it was someone who was playing Sabalenka, and then it was, uh, it was uh, oh, was it Svitolina? Did Svitolina play Sabalenka? I'm forgetting, but anyway, Ukrainian Serenko? I forget. Um, you know, nobody should be getting booed, all right? I could be mistaken, but I don't think I'm hitting the right demographic here. I feel like people who are following tennis carefully understand kind of the situation. Now, you may have an opinion one way or another, but I, I feel like most of the people booing at, in center court at Wimbledon are people who have not been following and are like, what the heck was that? No handshake, thinking that Azarenka is being a sore loser or something, and, and they're just naive and out of the loop. Other notes to finish this off. Chapo, uh, unfortunately, still is dealing with knee issues, and he could not really compete against Roman Safulin. That's disappointing to see. He's got to try to get that knee right. Uh, he missed a lot of the clay court season with these knee problems. And in this match, it was hard to watch. Sinner gets through Galan in straights. What did I say in the preview? You know, and I'm not, I, I shouldn't even be patting myself in the, on the back because it's obvious. This quarter, 
was bound to get messy. And it has. Yannick Sinner's won the draw lottery. He doesn't need to play Taylor Fritz. He doesn't need to play Roberto Batista Gut like I thought he may have to. And instead, it's Galan round of 16, Safulin quarterfinal. It's a lot of pressure on Yannick, but obviously the draw has really opened up for him in a nice way. All right. Tomorrow, uh, more fourth round action. Top half on the men's side. Uh, I'll have Monday match analysis tomorrow with a guest previewing every single men's quarterfinal match. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.